Let's turn in the Bible to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the latter part of the 12th chapter. And we'll read again verse 27. And Paul says, Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular, as he spoke to this church at Corinth. And before we read on the rest of the verses, I would like to clarify something that I made a mistake with last week. I was quoting a certain source of the Schofield, or a certain source that was referring to the Schofield Bible, and I said that they capitalized body in the Schofield Bible. That's not true. I think the source meant to say that they capitalized the word spirit. And, of course, it does have a small letter and a large letter at times, and I believe the source intended to say that. So I wanted to clear that up. And I just noticed it after I got home. I got to looking and I found out it was a a wrong statement. Sometimes you'll read a source and if you don't thoroughly study it out, they'll be giving you a a word. Maybe they didn't intend it to be that way themselves, but they misquoted it or it was mistyped or something. But anyway, we'll let that be as it is. And verse 27, he says, Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. And we know that just as uh, there are various members in our body, as a human being, that there are various members in uh, the local church, that each member has a different function and has a different purpose for being. And it says in verse 26, and whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. So whatever one of us feels, the other feels. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. So uh, we know that to be true, especially in the local church. Now, if you look at verse 28, and speaking of, the plan of the church from uh, the days of the apostles and of the word church in general, that he set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, and that after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. So he's pointing out that in the early churches, all of the churches, that there were set these various offices and gifts. Now, we know that as far as the apostles are concerned, that their uh, office ceased to be with the apostles. It was the requirement of apostles, first of all, that they had to have seen the Lord. Remember, Paul spoke of him seeing the Lord as one born out of due time. And therefore, he was an apostle uh, by the exception of the rule. He saw Jesus after he went back to heaven. And so, uh, the others that that were qualified to be apostles, had to continue with them. If you remember the first part of the book of Acts, the first chapter, it says, from the baptism of John until the day that Jesus was taken up from among them. And so that was a requirement to be an apostle. So he set some first uh, apostles. Uh, If you read in the book of Ephesians, chapter, let me get it for you, chapter 2 and verse uh, 20, it says, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. He's speaking of the church being built upon the uh, good foundation, true foundation of the apostles. But Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And then it says, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling place for the Lord. In verse 22, in whom ye also... He's speaking to the Ephesian church, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. The Ephesian church was to be an habitation or a place where God would dwell in the Spirit, in their midst. Now then, 
back in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28 again, he said some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets. There were uh, prophets, not only in the sense that they prophesied of things of the future, but prophets in some instances refers to preachers or ministers. In this sense, I believe he's talking about those that were actually prophets of the early church that foretold of things of the future. Thirdly, teachers. After that, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities, or different kinds of tongues. And this was of languages. Now then, in verse 29, he says, Are all apostles? Now, as he begins to ask these questions, you're going to see that the answer to every one of them is obviously no. No, all are not apostles. Then he says, Are all prophets? No, all are not prophets. Are all teachers? No. So answer this question as we go along. Are all workers of miracles? The answer is again obvious. No. Have all the gifts of healings? No. Do all speak with tongues? That is, other tongues than their own native tongue? No. Do all interpret? By the way, if you look at verse 30, there's a certain group today, and they have been through the years and from time to time, that claim that if you have not spoken in tongues, that you do not have any assurance that you've received the Holy Spirit, right? And here, Paul says, do all speak with tongues? And the answer is just as obviously no as it is, are all apostles. So that all would, uh, you could just as well say, in order to be saved, you would have to be an apostle. You would have to have the gift of healing. You would have to have the gift of miracles as to say that a person would have to have the gift of tongues in order to be saved. And that's what people claim today. They say, well, I was saved and I was baptized with the Holy Spirit and I have the evidence, evidence of what? Of speaking in tongues. And they claim that that is the evidence of salvation and the evidence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit or of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is not teaching that here. Where they got that teaching is beyond me because the Scripture does not teach that that a person has to have a, a gift of tongues. In fact, I don't believe the gift of tongues they claim to have today was the same that we're talking about here in the Scripture in the first place, let alone the fact that in spite of what they claim, that they say that everyone has to speak in tongues. In other words, if you haven't spoken in tongues, brother, you're just not a Christian, you haven't had the Holy Spirit, and you're just really bad off. And the Bible teaches, if anything, that if... Even in the day when the gift of tongues did exist, and it did in the early church for a sign and for a purpose, even then it was the least and baby and the less necessary of all of the gifts that were given. And we're going to try to show you that where some of these things were felt unnecessary, they ceased to be and they passed off the scene as far as a scriptural aspect of them still being a gift that is exercised in the local churches today. And I believe you'll find that in the next chapter when we uh, come to speak on love. So it says, do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Can everyone interpret a foreign language? No, you have to have someone that knows that language or that tongue. And then Paul says, but covet earnestly the best gifts, the best one. If a person is to covet any of the gifts, the, the tongues would be the last on the list. If he says the best gifts, he means that all of these others precede and are before the gift of tongues. And yet you find people saying, boy, that's the, the only thing they do covet, if they covet any. 
And of course, as I said before, we're going to see something more excellent and greater than all of that. And Paul states it here. And yet, show I unto you a more excellent way. And in the 13th chapter, you have the more excellent way begin to be shown to us. What is the more excellent way? He says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. If I could speak all the languages of men, and if I could even speak the heavenly language of angels, whatever language they use, however they communicate with one another, and all of that holy eloquence that the angels may have. He says, and have not charity or love. Now, we'll use the word love because this is really the meaning of this word. It's the same word that was used in John 3.16 when God says, when the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's the same word that is used. And he says, if I could speak with the tongues of men, all the languages of men and of angels even, and have not love, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. In other words, he's saying that no matter if it's an earthly or a heavenly excellence, uh, eloquence, that it's vain without love. No matter how eloquent a speech or a language or a tongue that a person could speak, if he does not, does not have love, it is all without uh, purpose. It is vain. It is no good. And then he goes on to say, <clears throat> and says, though I have the gift of prophecy. Now, here we are talking about prophecy in the sense that the New Testament early prophets were in the church. And we read of some in the book of Acts where there were prophets among them and they prophesied of a certain drought that was to come and it came to pass on a certain day. And he says, I have the gift of prophecy and understood all mysteries, a special gift of, of understanding mysteries, and all knowledge. Now, this is knowledge not like we study for in the, in the Bible, but a special given knowledge uh, as a gift to know things of the future. It would be more or less in harmony with the prophets that know, know the future. And have all knowledge, that is, uh, as a gift. And though I have all faith, the gift of faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not charity. I'm nothing. See, knowledge of the future and all of these things that are mentioned. They're of no value without love. Have not love. He says, I am nothing. It wouldn't amount to anything. This is the more excellent way that Paul speaks of in verse 31. In other words, Paul is saying that the essential element that needs to remain in the church above all of these other gifts, above all of the other things that are mentioned, is love must be there. And then I want you to notice, it says in verse 3, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. Look, a man can give to the poor. He can feed multitudes of hungry. He can even uh, undergo martyrdom, be a martyr. And without love, it's all worthless. doesn't amount to anything. You know, many people have given themselves as martyrs for false religions or false purposes and causes. Look, we hear of, of it, uh, not every day, but very often. We'll hear of it over in uh, Ireland especially, where they're having the differences between Catholicism and Protestantism. And you'll find that these people will, will starve themselves to death for their cause. To make an impression. It's all worthless without love. And for a false cause, it's worthless. Because 
there can be no real, genuine, God-given, divine love connected with a false cause and a false purpose. You see, all of those lives that are, that are given, a, a man sacrificing himself, even if he gave his body not to starvation, but to be burned, it would be useless without love. I wonder how many people have died for false causes and false religions throughout the years, thinking that they were accomplishing a purpose when it was all unnecessary and just as well have never been. It was in vain. It was useless for them to undergo all that they underwent for the sake of their cause if it was not with love and divine love, and it couldn't be if that cause was not true. We have that going on today. People on starvation. People going on hunger strikes because of certain things. They do that in prisons where where there's people that uh, they're not confessing their guilt of their sin that they committed in, in putting them where they are. I'm sure that there's some innocent people. I'm sure that sometimes a person is, is put in prison when he really doesn't deserve it. And I think that would be the most horrible thing to happen to an individual, for him to have to associate with people when he was not really one of them and had not been guilty of a crime. But yet, on the other hand, some of these fellows that have committed murder and adultery and rape and all kinds of terrible crimes, they sit there and they starve themselves to death or they do certain things, go on certain kinds of strikes and do certain terrible things in order that they'll have certain privileges. They'll have different kind of food maybe or maybe have more uh, recreation or they'll get to have more television or Maybe their, uh, their television is black and white instead of colored, and they want a colored TV. And they do all kinds of things because their rights have been violated. But what about the rights of the ones that they stabbed with a knife, or a woman that has been abused, or a child that has been abused, or kidnapping, or some other thing? They don't think about that. It's all remorse and what I can get out of it and what I'll do in order to get that. And then you find the news media looks upon them and they say, they're on a starvation diet. They're going to sit there. They're going to starve unless they get these. And they'll talk about the conditions. I'm sure conditions in prisons are not what they need to be in order to care for people even properly. But, you know, after all, a lot of times, in fact, 90% of the time, a man brings his troubles upon himself whether it's in prison or out of prison. And you know we have people that suffer that are not in prison as well. And they, and they suffer not because uh, someone has done them wrong, but because they've done someone else wrong. You see, the Bible says that whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And I believe in a certain sense of the word, though many of God's children are persecuted and mistreated, that in a certain sense of the word that they are blessed, even though... We do not live in the days like the apostles lived in and that they, they, many of them hazarded their lives and gave their lives for the sake of Christ. In this day and hour, I believe that we bring most of our problems and troubles upon ourselves. But anyway, it says he could give his body to be burned. And without love, it wouldn't amount to anything. And he says, now in verses 4 through 7, as we begin to look at what love really is, let's see what love shows us. Let's see how love affects us and what it represents in our lives, what it means to us. Love, in verse 4, it says, suffereth long. That means it's patient. That means it's long-suffering. It's slow to anger. Love has this about it. 
It says it suffers long and is kind. What is love? It's long-suffering. It's patient. It is slow to anger. It's kind. That means it's tender and sympathetic. It's understanding. If a fellow is kind, he has an understanding. He, he's willing to be tender. He's willing to show some attention and compassion. And it says, charity or love envieth not. It does not envy. It, that means it's generous. It's generous toward others. It's not envious of the other fellow. Charity or love vaunteth not itself. In other words, it's never inflated with self. It's never puffed up. Not puffed up. We used to speak of the frog, you know, that he that he puffed himself out and he puffed himself out and, the, and, and suddenly he burst. Well, that's what a lot of people do. They just puff themselves out so much that finally they, something has to give sometime or another. We blow ourselves up like a balloon. The first thing you know, someone sticks a, a pin in it and it's all gone, isn't it? We ought to learn how to live. If, if, if we have love, we're not going to do that. We're not going to count ourselves so much better than the next fellow. We're going to count ourselves as God would have us to walk in faith and, and to understand, have a solid uh, foundation in our thinking that we'll be of a stable mind and heart, that we know where we stand, we have deep convictions, but we'll not puff ourselves up. We'll not think ourselves above doing any certain wrong because we're capable of falling into sin. The Bible says, Galatians 6.1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. And it says, Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. What's he talking about? Maintain the spirituality whereby you may help others, but do it with the understanding that you could be in the same place because we are human beings. And we're capable of sin. So look, it says, Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Look in verse 5. Doth not behave itself unseemly. It behaves reasonably. It's not harsh and it's not rude and it's not overbearing. Have you ever run across people that are just completely harsh about everything? They're rude. They treat you rude. And they're overbearing. Love is not that. Love doesn't manifest itself in that way. Now then, any time you and I get out of control and are not controlled by the Holy Spirit, we may manifest some of these vain characteristics because love is not supreme at that particular time. In other words, sometimes when we lose our temper or sometimes when we're rude to someone, it's evident that we're not we're not being filled with love on that particular at that particular time. If we were, we would act differently. Now, sometimes we act without thinking. Sometimes we act uh, without wanting to act that way. A lot of times I've done something or said something or even failed to say something. Sometimes it's just a failure to speak up when we need to give a word of, of encouragement. And I look back on it and I say, my, I could have been a little more kind or I could have said something to help that person bear, be forbearing. And we'll get into that, that and forgiving one another in love. So if we put this into practice, you know, I believe the Bible is not only given to us to, to understand it and to know it, but to put it into practice. Now, 
uh, we realize that we're not living up to a perfect standard because we are human beings, but it doesn't keep us from striving toward that end and to try to do better than we have before. Now, I want you to notice, it says, It doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own. Love doesn't always seek, seek her own. But it says, is not easily provoked. Is not easily provoked. If you're provoked very easily, you'll see that you should have been slow to wrath. The Bible says that a man ought to be slow to wrath, slow to anger. So sometimes we can be provoked to be angry when, uh, if we would just hold our peace and if we could think and if we could just keep ourselves as we ought to in the love of God then we wouldn't be easily provoked. And I believe this is one of our great faults. A lot of times we provoke so easily that we fly off the handle and then we want to tell someone off. You know, it's never good to tell someone off. I've heard people say, well, I really told him off. Well, maybe he had it coming. Maybe it was due, but it didn't make you feel any better and it didn't do really a whole lot of good. So it's better if we don't, if we learn to control that. And we don't usually do that. We're all human, and a lot of times we do tell people off when we shouldn't. And we come back too quickly before all the... Sometimes I've answered people, and they'd just give me a part of the problem, and I've already given the answer. Well, I should have waited till I knew all the facts, and I could have given a better answer, or I could have kept quiet at that time. So we do a lot of things we're not supposed to do. That's why James says it's that we need to bridle that tongue and we need to be slow to wrath and slow to anger. I'll read you a few verses of Scripture in a minute. might read some of them for you and then we'll go on. But in First Peter, let me give you these Scriptures. And if you want to copy some of them down, I'll read them very quickly and you'll see uh, how it connects with love, what we're talking about. But First Peter 3.10 says this. Listen carefully. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. That's a good verse. And then it says, in the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 6 and verse 6, listen carefully. By pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned. And it goes on, by the word of truth, by the power of God, and so on. There are many verses of Scripture that will help us. The third one is Titus 3, verse 4. It says this, but after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. God's kindness and love appeared to us through Christ. And then in the book of uh, Proverbs 27 and verse 2, it says this, Let another man praise thee, and not thine own mouth, a stranger, and not thine own lips. Not thine own lips. And then we find in the book of First uh, Peter 3 verse 8 again, it was 3 verse 10 we gave you at first. 3 verse 8 says, Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Verse 9 is good. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrariwise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. If God has called us to inherit a blessing, certainly we ought to be a source of blessing. So, that's love. Let me give you another one. James 1, verse 19. James 1, verse 19. It says this. Uh, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, 
And look, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Usually, we're swift to speak and hasty to, to wrath. But it says, let him be swift to hear. Be more ready to hear than we are to speak. Let him be swift to hear and slow to speak and slow to wrath. And we need to begin to put these things in practice. In the book of Galatians, chapter 6 and verse 1, we quoted this to you a little bit ago. It says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Now, this is a brother being willing to to uh, restore another brother in some fault that's overtaken. Uh, Hebrews 1, verse 9. Hebrews 1, verse 9. And it says this, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. This was said of Jesus, that he loved righteousness. He hated sin. He hated iniquity. And of course he was anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. Second Timothy 1 verse 12. Let me give you this and then we will get into to further. Second Timothy 1 in verse 12. It says this. It gives us assurance and confidence to know this. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. These are references that could have been read on down as we progress to the to the last points of love. But anyway, keep them in mind as we read on down and, and look at the Scripture. Now then, if you have First uh, Corinthians 13 again, look in verse 6. It says, Rejoiceth. Well, we didn't finish verse 5. It says, Seeketh not our own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. It has to do with our thinking. Now then, how is it that we can think no evil? You say, well, I think evil when I should not. I should think good. Well, the evil thoughts come across our mind, but to really think upon evil, you have to let that evil thought stay there. And as a child of God, you want to get rid of it as quick as you can, don't you? You've heard the old saying, you can let a bird fly over your head, but don't let him stop and build a nest there. Well, that's uh, the way of our thoughts, too. The devil can run something across your mind. In fact, he can try to get a hold of it and make it stay there. But if we'll pray and say, Lord, get that thought out of my mind. I want to think as a Christian ought to think. Then we can can, uh, benefit from it. And the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So we've got to put up some resistance. The, the spiritual battle that we have to fight is not easy. So when it says, think of no evil, it's going to require a little bit of help on our part to, to do away with those evil thoughts if they come. In verse 6, it says, rejoiceth not in iniquity. In other words, we're not ready to find someone else taken in sin. We don't rejoice in other people's sins. But it says, but rejoiceth in truth. This would mean that we're not quick to to criticize or condemn. This means that we would hate sin and we would love righteousness. We would not rejoice in iniquity, but, but we would rejoice in the truth. And I believe this is what we should have. A lot of people rejoice in iniquity. They just have a good time when there's sin and when there's tr- trouble and problems. But the Christian wants to rejoice in truth, and love rejoices in the truth. 
And look at love again in verse 7. It says it beareth all things. Bears all things. It's a forbearer and a forgiver. And it believeth all things. It has confidence. Believeth all things. It has faith. Love, entwined with love, it says it beareth all things. It believeth all things. There's confidence in, in God and in His Word. And it says, endureth all things. It, it's enduring. It'll last. Love is permanent. It's not going to, to fail. It'll be there from now on. If you look at verse 8, it says, charity or love never faileth. It's a permanent thing. A permanent fixture. A permanent possession of the believer. It will never die out or it will never become unnecessary. If you look in this 8th verse, you'll find that there are other things that... That finally became unnecessary in the infant church. You'll find that other things finally ceased to be and passed away, which a lot of people don't believe today and teach that it still exists. But if you look at this verse very carefully, you'll see that prophecy and tongues and knowledge as, as a gift will vanish away. Look at it. Charity never faileth. It's the more excellent way. But whether they be prophecies, they shall fail. In other words, we won't need the prophecies anymore. Love is not going to fail. It's going to be necessary. It's going to be permanent. But prophecies, they shall fail. It doesn't mean that the, the prophecies of the early prophets in the New Testament church that they gave were failures. It means that they would fail to be and cease to be. Look at the context. Where there be tongues, they shall cease. This gift of tongues, languages, they would cease to be necessary at all. And whether there be knowledge, and this is knowledge of the future in the sense of a gift, it shall vanish away. We won't have need of that anymore. There's a reason for that. We'll get into it in a moment. Why would it be not necessary to have these gifts of prophecies of the future or tongues, other languages, or knowledge as a gift? Because when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away in verse 10. Let's read verse 9 and 10. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect, that is complete, and we believe the word of God is complete, the Bible tells us that it's God's full revelation to man. You read in the 22nd chapter, I believe it is, or the last chapters of the book of Revelation, and it tells us that that it's a full revelation that a man should not add to nor take from. Not only the book of Revelation, but I believe it's referring, it refers to the whole of God's word. A man is not to add to. It's said back in the book of Proverbs, Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. But when that which is perfect, complete, a complete revelation is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. And since we have the Bible, we do not need the prophets, the the prophets as of the early church, the infant church. Uh, we do not need knowledge that is gained or that is given by a miraculous uh, gift, the gift of knowledge, because knowledge now is gained by the study of the Word. How do you gain spiritual knowledge and know anything about the Word today? It's because the Bible says, study to show thyself approved unto God. There's where your knowledge comes from today. You don't have to have a gift of knowledge. I believe God gives His children a spirit, the Holy Spirit, to understand His Word, and thereby that is the way we're made to understand the knowledge 
of God's Word and understand God's Word, but we don't have that special gift of knowledge. But, on the, by the same token, the more we study God's Word and the more we diligently apply ourselves to the Word, the better off we're going to be in knowledge. And it's gained through that means of study. And that's why the Bible tells us, Paul tells Timothy, study to show thyself to prove unto God. He doesn't say, Timothy, you pray that God will give you the gift of knowledge. He didn't say that to Timothy. He says, Timothy, you study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so when we have that which is complete and perfect and full, there's one thing that remains, and that's love above all. Now, when you get to verse 11, look at it. It says, when I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Some of these early gifts were classified as childish things for the infant church. But when the church became mature, when the church had all the necessary offices that need to remain in the church, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, as Paul says in the book, I believe it's Ephesians, but he says there remains those, or in First or Second Timothy, he speaks of the pastors and the and the evangelists and the teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the edifying of the body of Christ, for the work of the ministry. And then he speaks here of the fact that as a child in the church, or as the church in its infancy, uh, these childish things would finally have to be put away. And I believe that uh, many of them have been put away. A lot of people do not believe that today. A lot of people teach otherwise. But I believe we have the full revelation of God's Word. We don't need a, a man to stand up in the church today and say, well, there's going to be a drought a year from now. We don't need a man to stand up in the church today and say, I have a special revelation from God because we can find that revelation here. And we've got people that do that. And I found out that 90% of the time what they have revealed is either found in the Word or it doesn't come to pass and it's a false uh, revelation of what they predicted would happen because we have God's full revelation. And so we don't need that today. We don't need the tongues today. We don't need many of the gifts. We do not have the apostles today, but we have other things that remain. And Paul says in verse 12, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as as also I am known. In the future, all of it will be brought to light. When we know everything as we, sh as we should know and will know, when the Lord comes again, we'll have a full revelation, we'll have full knowledge, we'll have full understanding of everything. But meanwhile, he says in verse 13, And now abideth faith, hope, love, these three. What remains? He said some things have ceased to be. Verse 8. What ceased to be? He said, whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. That means they'll come to an end. That'll be all of it. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. And he's talking about the gifts of knowledge. We know that, that we still know as we study and as God gives us knowledge through, the, through study, as we've already said. But he says now in verse 13 again, and now abide it. Some things abide, even though some things have ceased to be. Some things abide. Now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. 
In other words, faith and hope are necessary all through uh, this world. But love will uh, be alone necessary in eternity. And love will always be. Love, verse 8, charity never faileth. It never faileth. It will always be. Let me give you another little slant to that 8th verse. Charity never faileth. You know, we can try a lot of things as far as working for the Lord and serving the Lord and dealing with people. But if we have love, we have the promise that it will not fail, that love never fails. We may do a lot of things and we'll say, well, when I teach them right, that, that, that will not fail. Well, if you teach with love, it will never fail. But if we do not have love, then it's going to fail. It will not do as much good. Maybe it'll have some bearing upon someone's life. But here's something that we can put down that it never fails. You know, I remember a story that I believe it was Dr. Wayne Martin, Brother Wayne Martin, told of a certain young lady that was giving her parents a great deal of trouble. And they had tried to uh, discipline her. They had spanked her. They had... Uh, uh, given her certain, they had grounded her, they wouldn't let her go out, they had done various things, and they had tried uh, giving her money, and maybe that would do it, and keep her from doing the things she was doing, and they had tried everything, they tried everything in the world. And finally, the girl's father was in church one day, and he heard the preacher read that scripture, charity or love never faileth. And he brought out the point that try this when everything else has failed. And he said he decided that when he went home he was going to going to show her nothing but love that regardless of what she did he would tell her what was right but he would show her that he loved her and it didn't it didn't happen all at once it had to take a great deal of time but finally when she thoroughly realized fully realized that her dad did really love her then it had some effect on what she's doing it changed her life Completely. And I believe that if we'll stick to it, it doesn't mean just one one uh, instance of showing your love towards someone, that their whole life is going to just uh, change and they're going to be saints of God immediately. It doesn't mean that. But it says it will never fail. It never faileth. And I believe sometimes if we'd keep that as the supreme gift, the supreme thing before our eyes in everything that we do, then we'd have far more success in dealing with people. It may take a lot longer, but it would be genuine, it would be true, and the outcome would be glorious. And let's try to do that in our lives as Christians. I thank you for your kind attention, and I'd like for us to stand for a word of prayer.